I haven't given this seminar before. Who knows? We could be done in 20 minutes and have time for questions. Or worst case scenario, I'll, I'll finish early just so that we can all get across for the next session. Um, my guess is that you're here for one of two reasons. Either you have tried to preach Old Testament narrative and it didn't go so well and you asked the secretary to take those sermons down from the church website <laughs> and you're afraid of ever going back there uh, or you've yet to try it and you just intuitively know that this is a different world to that of the New Testament epistles. Either way, my goal would be to try and help us think better about how we should preach Old Testament narrative texts today. And as a starter for 10, it would be helpful to try and define exactly what is the problem. Why would it even be valid to have a seminar on this particular genre within the Bible? And I've tried to condense it there just into one sentence. The New Testament preacher, that's us, we aspire to herald theological truth and to give the implications that flow from that truth. That's our, that's our desire, and it's right. It's proper. However, Old Testament narrative gives us neither of those things. So this is very, very different to, for example, the New Testament epistles, which typically give us both. You land in Romans for a few years, and every Sunday you're blessed because the theological truth that you are supposed to preach is right there in the text. And then not far from it, usually, is an implication that becomes the second part of your sermon. When you get to the Old Testament, and specifically the narrative portions, neither are given in an explicit manner. Most usually, the theological truth, the point of the passage, is inferred. You have to read the text so as to, to find out what that is, and interpret the text well, and so also is the implications. The implications are not given, but you have to think through those. So it is a very, very difficult genre. I would argue perhaps one of the trickiest genres in all of the Bible. Uh, the solution, I'll just give you this sentence and then my seminar is essentially me trying to explain the sentence to you for an hour. Uh, the solution, as I've written it, read the text as a plot that pivots between two worlds. Read the text as a plot that pivots between two worlds. I'll spend the next hour explaining that, but in, in brief summary format, you have to read Old Testament narrative for plot. If you haven't discerned the plot structure, you have not aligned your interpretive efforts with authorial intent. And more than that, you have to under, understand plot as a mechanism by which the text is bridging the two worlds namely the world in which the narrative was written and is situated and the world in which it is intended to speak into. Uh, the thoughts that I'm going to give you today are not my own. Paul Ricoeur, French philosopher, uh, wrote what continues to be the most extensive work on narrative to this day, three-volume work, Time and Narrative. I spent the last four years of my life with Ricoeur. He's a good friend of mine now. And uh, he has a few things that we could learn from him as it relates to how narrative works. So what I want to present to you then is my interpretation uh, with some amendments of Paul Ricoeur's understanding of a narrative text and how it should rightly reconfigure our world. It has a lot to teach us about how to preach Old Testament narrative. 
And the first step, as you can see, the left-hand column there, is what I call establishing the narrative world. Uh, this is not merely noting the context. This is not me giving some academic dressing up of the term, pay attention to the context. The reason I steer away from saying that is because what guys normally hear when I say you have to pay heed to the context, what they hear is, okay, so I'll read the text just prior to my text and the text that comes just after so as to ensure that there's nothing going on in those texts that fundamentally shapes my interpretation of the text I have for this Sunday. Establishing the narrative world is so much more than that. It is perceiving the moment of prefiguration whereby you come to terms with the narrative norms and the narrative goals. Your narrative text, whatever it is that you have decided to preach in your church, your narrative text is situated within a narrative world. And before you are ready to preach your chosen text, you have to be very ho at home in the world, the narrative world of your text. So you want to preach a sermon series on the life of Joseph. That's wonderful, but you cannot just dive in at Genesis 37 and think that you're going to do a good job. Because Genesis 37 through 50 is situated in a narrative world, namely Genesis, and the narrative world has certain rules, certain rules by which the game is being played. And you have to become very much at home with that narrative world before you're ready to understand the plot structure of the Joseph narrative. So I'll say to my students often, if you, if you have a wonderful sermon series lined up for the fall, let's say it's the life of Joseph, spend the summer in Genesis. Spend the whole summer just reading and rereading the Genesis narrative and availing yourself of all of the resources you can find so as to learn that world. I boil it down to two principles. One is learning what are the narrative norms, and the other is learning what are the narrative goals. Narrative norms encompass such things as cultural traditions, the moral value system, and the communicative standards. How is the game played in this narrative world? Be careful of not simply importing what you know to be true elsewhere in the Bible. The narrative norms of Genesis are distinct and different from the epistolary norms of Romans. Just because you know what righteousness in Romans is, that doesn't mean you get to import that definition into the narrative world of Genesis. This is perhaps the greatest enemy of the preacher when he embarks upon establishing the narrative world. He makes many, many assumptions drawing from what he knows to be true elsewhere in the Bible. There are narrative norms that are unique to the world in which your text is being found, and you've got to spend time there to figure out what they are. My paraphrase of that rule is, what are the rules of the game? By establishing the narrative norms, you're essentially asking, what are the rules of the game? If I, if I dropped you into the middle of a cricket pitch today, you exactly, <laughs> you would know what's going on, and you would not dare to step up to the wicket. You would not dare to do that. You would say, before I step up and, and this guy bowls a ball at me, tell me what the rules are. That's what you have to do with narrative preaching. That's your first step. In Genesis, just by way of example, if you spend enough time there, you'll start to realize that there is a strong patriarchal emphasis. These men are 
incredibly important as the narrative progresses, there seems to be some kind of favoritism, divine favoritism, if I can say it like that, towards righteous behavior. And again, you would need to define what that is within Genesis. And there seems to be a concern for the selection of the primogenitor. The narrative is advancing, it would seem, with a concern for the firstborn in the family. Broadly speaking, they would be the rules. You then ask, well, then how do I win the game? I know what the rules are, but what do I need to do to advance the game forward? What are the thematic emphases in this narrative? What are the markers that indicate narrative progression? And what is the end state? You can tell an awful lot about the priorities within a narrative by going all the way to the end. What does the end state look like? That's often an indication of where this narrative is intending to head, what the rules of the game are, and how you win the game. Again, within Genesis, you start to realize that kingship is a priority, that the seed is a priority, that the structuring mechanism is the Toledote formula, these are the generations of, and that the whole book is written so as to establish a royal line in accordance with the promise of a deliverer. It's not until you've established the narrative world that you're ready to preach whatever your chosen text is. It's not until you've established the narrative world that you are equipped to start reading your text with plot structure in mind. The benefit of reading the narrative world is it will start to tell you why your chosen text is even there. You don't understand why the story of Joseph and his brothers is in Genesis until you've established the narrative world. When you have, when you know what the norms are and the goals are, now you start to understand why this story was even included and why it's configured and told in the manner that it is. How do you establish the narrative world? Uh, a number of pieces of advice that I often give. Number one, holistic reading of the text. You have to put your microscope away and you have to stand back and you have to read the whole thing and try as best you can to get your arms around the entire narrative. If you want to preach the life of one of the judges, you need to stand back and read Judges many, many, many times and try to get your mind wrapped around what the big picture looks like, the holistic reading. Uh, additionally, there are many good resources. I point people towards those first 100 pages in any good commentary. So before we get to the treatment, the verse-by-verse -verse treatment of the text, before we get there, don't skip over those initial 100 pages where the commentator talks about what are the thematic emphases in this book. Because they're very, very helpful discussions to start to orient you to the narrative world. And then finally, there are many, many good biblical theologies available today. There has been a, a resurgence in biblical theology in recent times, and that's a good thing. And biblical theology, don't think of it simply as an exposition of a, a theme or motif across Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That's, that is biblical theology, but so also is ruminating on the narrative world of Genesis. That's also biblical theology, and the more that you can get your hands on those kind of resources, the more that you'll be helped. I would encourage you as a preacher to preach the narrative world. So that series that you have lined up on the life of Joseph, perhaps the first sermon or two, is given to the narrative world of Genesis. You are simply trying to help your people along the journey that you have made this summer 
as you've oriented yourself to the norms and the rules of the game. Consider, before you launch into the text proper, the idea of what would come across as an overview sermon. It will be immeasurably valuable in the life of the church as you work through the text over the following months. For them to know what the priorities of the narrative are and even why this text is found where it is in the book. With that being said, you then move to the text itself, the text that you desire to preach. And the first thing you need to do is read the text for plot. You have to read for plot. What do I mean by that? Perhaps the greatest error in preaching Old Testament narrative texts is that the preacher has not read for plot. And so what he does every Sunday is he's confronted with the the text that will be preached uh, this coming Sunday. What he does on the Monday morning is he looks for details within the text that he knows will preach. And often they will be along the, the horizontal axis of the individualistic, moralistic character study, or on the vertical level, it will be a case study in the attributes of God. Most Old Testament uh, sermons that have not read for plot default to one of those two. And so the, the preacher consistently says from his Old Testament sermon something along the lines of, don't be like this man. What a terrible example. Don't be like Abraham. And then the next week, his sermon sounds like, be like Abraham. What a wonderful man. (laughs) And anyone that's really tuned into what you're doing is now confused because there's a mixed message from Sunday to Sunday, and that's because you're not reading for plot. And so what you do is you go after the low-hanging fruit, which is character studies, and you latch on to a reprehensible or a commendable attribute of the person in view, or you do equivalent the, the, the same thing with God. He's a character in the narrative. And you see that in the narrative, God is gracious. And so your whole sermon becomes an exposition of the doctrine of God's grace. Praise God that we we serve a gracious God. That's your Old Testament narrative sermon. And the problem is that's not incorrect. It's theologically true that God is gracious. You have not preached heresy. Everyone's salvation is still intact. But it's not the point of the text. The fact that God is gracious is not the point of the text, at least it isn't necessarily the point of the text. We do see his grace in here, but why? Why is it in there, and why is this chapter in here, and why is this chapter in here, in the place it's in? This is where you need to make a shift to your interpretive efforts and start understanding that the king in the rubric of reading Old Testament narrative is the plot structure. The plot structure reigns over everything else that's going on, and the plot structure is what is going to align your reading of the text with authorial intent. Every story in the Bible is told according to a particular narrative logic. And before you can preach that text, you have to discover what that logic is. You have to discern the plot structure. How do you do that? The first job is to delineate the narrative, that is to divide it up according to scenes. And as a general rule of thumb, scenes in Hebrew narrative are delineated by a change in person or place or time. When those things change, generally you're into a new scene. And we're often helped in this respect because the scenes most often are delineated in our Bible by the chapter divisions. So you're greatly helped there. 
After that, you now need to ask what is perhaps the hardest question in your study, how do the scenes relate to one another? It's maybe the trickiest question, especially if you're not well practiced at it. I can see what's happening in Genesis 37, I can see what's happening in 38 and 39, but how do they relate? You are now starting to probe the underlying logic, that is, the plot structure of the narrative. And there in parentheses I've put, it's time to think. It normally takes an awful long time before you are able to account for why every scene is in this narrative where it is. Why is this story being told the way it is being told? Now, we are greatly helped. We're greatly helped by a 19th century German playwright whose name was Freitag. And if any of you have literary backgrounds, you'll be familiar with the little schematic there. Freitag blessed the world with his pyramid. And most stories, including the stories in the Hebrew Bible, are told in such a way that they, they demonstrate adherence to Freitag's pyramid. We are greatly helped in this respect. So he said most stories follow the, the progression of an exposition. That is where you lay out the, the pieces of information that you need to know for a successful reading of this narrative. Then the inciting moment, that's the first appearance of what will go on to be the crisis. Then the rising action, that's normally a suspenseful time in the narrative where we understand things are moving towards the climax. That's where there's a change and a resolution of sorts to the crisis. Then the falling action as things are started to tie together and the resolution and the denouement or the conclusion. Most stories follow, roughly speaking, that kind of progression, including the stories in the Old Testament. So if you start with Freitag's pyramid and see if your text, the life of Joseph, the life of Abraham, one of the judges, if it would map onto Freitag's pyramid, it probably is going to account for about 80% of your narrative. Maybe 80% of your narrative will fall into place and now you can say this is why this scene is here and why it is being told in relation to the other scenes and then you've got a few anomalies that you need to account for and typically there's often good journal articles that have been written probing that very question. Interpretation of the scene, then once you've established the plot structure, you need to start examining the text. So just note, everything that I've said so far is precursory, in my mind, to the week in which you are preaching the text in view. Everything that I've talked about so far needs to happen not on the Monday morning prior to the Sunday where you'll be preaching. It needs to happen a long time before. Once you've established the narrative world and the plot structure, now Monday's here and you're ready to read the specific scene that you will be preaching that coming Sunday. Once you've established the plot structure, now your interpretation of the specific scene hopefully is aligned with authorial intent. You see, by establishing the plot structure, what that's going to do is guard you against making those individualistic, moralistic applications or simply case studies of the doctrine of God. You're going to be guarded against doing that because you know the point of the text is not primarily that. It's true that Abraham's a rascal in this scene, but I know because I thought about the plot structure that that's not the salient point of the text. Rather, I know that this text is doing something different, and so my sermon is going to be doing something different. 
I'm not just going to say to the people, don't be like Abraham, because I've thought about the plot structure. Now, how about interpreting the individual scenes? With the plot structure in view, how are you going to read the narrative? And we just remind ourselves of the problem. As we interpret the individual scenes, the problem is that the point of the passage is not given to us in an explicit way. It's always by inference with narrative. And so would the application be. So what are you going to do? Two questions, and I'm I'm very much condensing here a theory on how Old Testament narrative works. Two questions ask what is happening and how you're being told. Ask those two things. I would just at this minute point you to the footnote there. Uh, Those guys are going to help you read Old Testament narrative, perhaps more than anyone else would. I recommend those books to you for further reading. I don't agree with them theologically. So no need to send angry emails. I'm not saying I'm aligned with these guys on the gospel, but they know about Hebrew narrative. And you can read these guys and get a much more expanded version of what I'm giving to you here in 10 minutes. How do you examine and interpret one Old Testament scene? Read and explain to yourself what is happening and, crucially, how you are being told that it's happening. What's interesting is that we do this intuitively with other genres in the Bible. So if today I said, let's do a a case study in one of the Psalms, and we opened up a Psalm together, and and I said, give me some observations. Sooner or later, one of you would make the observation that the Psalm is arranged chiastically. And then one of you would say, and we could actually preach that point, there is significance to the chiastic arrangement of the Psalm. So intuitively, in in the Psalms, in Hebrew poetry, we know to look at not simply what is being said, but also how we're being told. We do this all the time elsewhere in the Bible. It still holds true in Hebrew narrative. It's perhaps harder to discern if you're not well practiced at it, but you have to understand the historical realities that are being communicated in Hebrew narrative are being fashioned and shaped in a way to communicate meaning. So you have to ask both questions with every text, what am I being told and how am I being told it? And often it's the case that the salient point of the text will emerge before your very eyes as you hold both questions in view. If all you do is ask the question of what's happening, you'll miss out on an awful lot. Let me just unpack that a little bit more then, and I've tried to summarize as best I can some uh, key principles to help you read and see the artistry that is there in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, It's a question of, of relationships. You can probe relationships. You can ask the question of what I call action versus pace, that is asking the question of time. Look at what's happening, but look at how fast it's happening. How quickly are you being told these things? In the exposition of a narrative, that first stage in Freitag's pyramid, typically things are being told very quickly. There's a lot of time that's being passed over with a few sentences, which means they are details that you need to know for later on, but that's not the point of this entire narrative. In the same way, at the end of the narrative, towards the conclusion, as the story comes to a resting point, we get the sense that a lot of information is being summarized. They all lived happily ever after. That spans an enormous amount of time. 
By contrast, when you get to the climax, typically a good indication that you're in the climax is that the narrative slows down to a near halt. The information being given at the point of climax is given in high definition. There is not a lot of time that's elapsing within the story over perhaps many chapters of the Bible. And that is an indication that this part is really important. Now, we do do, do this without even realizing it. We just notice narrative pace. But the important point here is that you would anchor your observations of narrative pace to the plot structure, that it would begin to inform your preaching. You start to know when to bang on the pulpit and when not to bang on the pulpit because the narrator is telling you when to. He's telling you by slowing down, I want you to be emphatic at this point. Another comparison that we can make is that of action versus action, or to put it another way, repetition. Uh, One of the distinctives of Hebrew narrative is its repetitious nature. If you read the Hebrew Bible, you'll notice just how many elements get recycled over and over again. That is not an indication of its simplicity. I think we can sometimes be lulled into thinking that, that it's a, a primitive form of narrative. It really isn't. It's, it's profound. And the repetitions are important. Every time you see a repeated element in the Old Testament narrative sections of your Bible, you are being invited by the narrator to compare and contrast. I liken it to those uh, coloring pages that the waitress gives you when you go into the restaurant and she gives them to my kids and there's two pictures and they have to spot the difference between the two. That's how repetition works in the Hebrew Bible. It could be a word that is repeated. It could be a phrase. It could be an event. It could be an idea. There are lots of different gradations of repetition, but it happens all over the place. In fact, the more I study Genesis, the more I am persuaded it is the primary mechanism by which Moses communicates meaning to us in that book. He talks, he, he talks in a repetitious manner, just consider by way of example, three times we're told, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Three times that happens. Again, that is not an indication of a simple narrative nor is it an indication that there was some kind of late insertion that then got doctored so it didn't look like an exact repetition. Moses is very skillful in allowing us to read that event three times, albeit with two different patriarchs, and the invitation stands to the reader to compare and contrast. And as a general rule of thumb, the repeated element is the invitation. It's a, it's a signal that there is a, a point to be made The differences are where the meaning arises. It's as you spot the inflections, and so often they will be minor inflections. As you spot the differences from occurrence one to occurrence two, that the significance of the repeated element starts to emerge. Notice this will also change your preaching of the text. Guard yourself, please, from dismissing a repeated element in your sermon. I say in class often we herald this high bibliology. We believe that every single word is inspired and authoritative. And then as preachers, we can communicate the exact opposite. We believe every single word is inspired and is significant and is in some way life-giving. And then when it comes to a repeated element, we refuse to deal with it. 
We haven't put the hours in to consider why would the inspired text give me a repetition at this point? And your job as the preacher is not to dismiss it, nor to simply explain it away by saying this is a point of emphasis. That's the other thing that we do with repetition. We see the repeated element and we just say that's, that's emphatic. It might be that's one way in which repetition is used. But you need to come to terms with it and how repetition works so as to bring about meaning from the text. A third relationship that we could examine is that of action and character. Again, our default reading of the text tends to be one where we focus on the low-hanging fruit, that is the opportunity to form a character impression of the protagonist or the antagonist or someone else within the narrative. Very rarely, very rarely does Hebrew narrative commend us toward a characterization of somebody in the text. Not nearly as often as you would think. Um, It is the low-hanging fruit But most often, Hebrew narrative is concerned with action, not character. So Aristotle said, plot is the arrangement of action, not plot is the arrangement of character. As you discern the plot structure, what you're discerning is how the action progresses, not how characters progress. Characters in narrative sit subservient to action. Action is what gives the narrative a shape. And so you don't, at every opportunity, commend your congregation to be like someone or to not be like someone, or even to take in the doctrines of God if the point of the text is not to form a character study at that particular moment. Indications that there is that intention is when a character is given a particularly large amount of airtime. If they're speaking a lot compared with the amount of airtime other characters have within that narrative, maybe, maybe at this point, the narrator is saying, I want you to form a character impression of him based on his words. Or perhaps the narrator is giving you some authoritative comments concerning that character. These tend to be quite rare in Old Testament narrative, but they do occur. Perhaps the narrator says to you, and so thus, and so, and, and, and thus so and so was wicked. Well, you can trust that and you can go to town with that. You can preach that because the narrator just told you and the fact that he's telling you is indicative that he wants you to understand that to be the salient point of the text. The point here is just to hold your efforts of characterizing people very lightly. It's not as frequent as you might think. One time that it does happen, an invitation to form a character impression of whoever in the narrative is around about the climax. It doesn't happen in the exposition. The exposition is laying out the necessary piece of information that you need to read the rest of the narrative successfully. So when you read in the exposition that Joseph was telling a bad report to his father, the point of your sermon that week is not, don't be a tattletale. That's not it, because we're in the exposition, and you know how expositions work, and expositions typically work so as to not form a character impression of someone. By contrast, when you get to the climax, what often happens in a well-told story at the point of climax is that a, a, a character, the protagonist, is portrayed in a very heroic manner, and you are brought very close to them, Because what the narrator wants is for you to see him as an example in your life. 
So the climax of the Joseph narrative would be when Judah gives his speech, his impassioned speech, and he's completely transformed from the way he was at the beginning of the narrative. And he gives a speech to Joseph. He doesn't know he's Joseph at the time. And he says, please don't keep Benjamin. Take my life for his. Complete 180 from the character that we met at the beginning of the narrative. And it's too much for Joseph. And he breaks down weeping and reveals himself. And there are certain things going on in the narrative, apart from simply the observation that Judas just got a ton of airtime. Nearly all of chapter 44 is given to his speech. So there's an invitation to form a character impression, and that would be a valid time in your sermon series to say, have you turned from your previous wrongs? Have you imitated Judah so as to learn from your past, and are you willing, are you willing to surrender your life for the sake of others? That's a valid sermon at that point in the narrative. Finally, the last comparison, action versus you, that is the reader. Uh, This is maybe the hardest one to apprehend. You have a part to play in the drama. You are a reader, and the narrator is positioning you at different points within the narrative. Most often within Old Testament narratives, you are on a level playing field with the characters in the text, which is to say you know as much as them. You sit below the authoritative narrator. He has all the information, he is trustworthy, and he holds back most of it. Another distinguishing feature of Hebrew narrative. There are occasions within the Old Testament when the reader is elevated. Elevated above characters, the narrator is giving to you more information than the characters know. So Genesis 38 is another good example. At the very beginning, in the exposition of Genesis 38, we are told by the narrator that God deemed Judah's sons to be wicked. We are told of internal thoughts in Judah's head. We are given a lot of information, and the characters are in ignorance. There are other times in the Hebrew Bible when we are in a position of ignorance and the characters sit above us where there are things that we don't know and the characters do know. They tend to be very suspense-filled moments in the text. As you start to discern your relationship to the people in the text, the point of the passage will emerge. Going back to my example in Genesis 38, the reason why at the very beginning we sit in such an elevated position is in order that we might cast judgment on Judah. It's kind of like we're in the judge's seat. He's way down there. We're up with the narrator knowing just about as much as he does. And that is an invitation to deem this man wicked. He's not a commendable fellow at that point. So that for the rest of the chapter, we can see and behold his character transformation. The points where you're in a position of ignorance and the characters know more and you're, you're yearning to get the information that the narrator is not giving you are typically moments of suspense. And again, as you try and anchor your interpretation to the plot structure, you then ask the question, so why at this point in the plot structure would it be advantageous for me to be in a position of suspense? It will often be prior to the climax. The narrator is drawing you in so as to get your attention for the climax. And the way that he does that is he withholds information. He puts you in this position of ignorance, and now you just keep reading because you want to know what happens. 
It could be, and this is often the case, that he holds back information, he puts you in a position of ignorance, so as to commend someone to you. Because the way it would work is that you don't know stuff, and you want to know stuff, and then a key point in the narrative, everything is made known, and you say, oh, now I get it, and you see a certain character in a new light. All of a sudden, you commend them in your own eyes because of what you didn't know and now what you do know. These are just some of the ways in which Hebrew narrative works. Again, there's so much more to say, and I would commend to you these books. Think about, as you read your text for Sunday, what am I being told? And crucially, how am I being told it? Once you've arrived at some initial observations, you can then test your interpretation. Our Bible is so wonderfully written that the observations concerning content should match the observations concerning form. It's not going to hold so well outside of the Bible, but generally, whatever is true, whatever is being communicated in the actual content, the what of what's happening, is lining up with the way in which it's being told. Your observations concerning content go hand in hand with those concerning form. So if you're new at this and you're trying to read your text for Sunday and you say, well, you know what, I think there's this intentional repetition here and I've compared and contrasted and I think the repetition in and of itself is trying to urge me towards this interpretation, just check the content. Does your content marry up with your observation about form? And if so, it's normally a good indication that you're reading the text along the right lines. And then, of course, you anchor it all back to your plot structure. When you preach Old Testament narrative, preach the plot. This is not beyond your people on a Sunday. You don't have to use fancy words. In fact, I recommend you don't. You make it accessible for them, but preach the plot. Tell them what this whole story is about. Your initial sermon will be a sermon on the exposition. You'll be giving them the key piece of information they need to know to read the rest of the story correctly. And then you have license within the pulpit to give them the rest of that story that Sunday. You can project forward within that sermon and show them how this story ends. Why these pieces of information within the exposition are so important. When you get to the climax, tell them we are at the most important point of the narrative this week because the crisis is finally resolved in this way. You are preaching the plot to them. And as good preachers, you'll also include your interpretive efforts. You'll not just tell them what it is you've discovered, but how you got there. And so wonderfully, you are at the same time teaching them to read their Old Testament Bibles. They would be no longer scared, Lord willing, after you've worked through a few Hebrew narratives, to to read the Old Testament narrative portions of their Bible for themselves with greater confidence that they are reading it in line with authorial intent. I have some understanding of why this story is here and what it is God wants me to learn from it. But your job is still not done. The final step is what I call appropriating to the reader's world. This is what we would typically call application. I now uh, guard myself from using that word for a number of reasons. Appropriating to the reader's world is not simply making a point of application that is in some way very tangentially relevant to the salient point of the text. Our hermeneutical principle 
is that there is one right interpretation, many valid applications, right? And I stand by that and I firm that. However, not all points of application are equal. There is one right interpretation, and I am confident there is always a subset of applications that are more in line with the authorial intent than others that you might make. So how do you get to the point of good application? Well, you can stop thinking of it in terms of application. I like to use the word appropriation because I picture that the text is trying to map itself onto our world and try to force itself and reorder elements of our world, which is different from the idea of me telling you this week, go and do such and such. I've put there the sentence, reread the plot with the presupposition of, presupposition of reference in view. What on earth does that mean? The presupposition of reference is the presupposition that I think we all hold that this text is intended to do something. We all believe that this text was written so as to affect our lives. We certainly believe it about other books. You might read a book and say to someone, you've got to read this, it's going to change your life. How much more so do we believe that about the inspired text? It is written with a reference point in view. When Moses wrote Genesis, he had his reader in mind. And what he intends to do with that narrative is to reconfigure your world in some way. He wants that text to launch into your world and start to change things. One way of getting to good appropriation is when all of your interpretive efforts are complete and you're confident of the plot structure and how each scene fits into the plot structure, just reread it again with the presupposition of reference in view. Just reread the plot structure and say, I believe that this text is intending to cross the boundary into the reader's world, reconfigure the reader's world, so how might it do that? With the plot structure I've established, how would it do that? And you'll be surprised how quickly good, solid appropriation starts to leap off the page to you when you have that question in mind. Often it's the case that Old Testament narrative is simply the, the, the referent point being the reader. Often it's the case that the narrator is simply trying to reconfigure your worldview. I would certainly say that's true of the Pentateuch. As Moses writes it, he is trying to get your worldview, wherever it is at the start of reading, by the end of it, he desires that your worldview would be aligned with that of God's and his and Genesis. Often, Old Testament narrative is written with the appropriation of reconfiguring worldview. Now, that has implications for your preaching. I would suggest that nine times out of ten, when you preach Old Testament narrative, your quote-unquote application will be come and see rather than go and do. I think most often in your preaching of Old Testament narrative, your application or appropriation to your congregation will be come and behold this truth. And that is a valid application rather than what you need to do in response. There will be some training involved that allows you to preach that. 
Perhaps your congregation are not yet at the point of understanding that to be a valid sermon. Perhaps you've trained them to think that's not a valid sermon. Who knows, maybe you'd give sermon handouts and at the bottom, points one, two, and three, this is what I'm to do this week. You have trained them to think of application as only being valid when they're told to do something this week in response. There will be some training involved to get them to a position where they understand an entirely valid and oftentimes right exposition of the text ends with an exhortation from you to them to behold the glory of the text. There's a lot of trust involved. There'll be some training. There'll be some trust on your part toward God. Trust that God can use those sermons. Trust that you're not failing your people when you don't say to them, go and do this in response. I would argue that actually God is going to work far more through the come and see sermons than go and do sermons. Because you are committing them, exhorting them to simply taking in more of the wonder of redemptive history. And that's when heart surgery gets to be accomplished. And then the specific lines of application, here's my job, here's my nine to five, not sure how to deal with this situation. They start to get that. Things start to fall in place because their world is now being configured to look like the narrative world. You have preached the plot faithfully and the appropriation of the text is such as to reconfigure certain elements in their world so now they just intuitively know what to do in response. There will be times when a specific point of application emerges. They're they're normally quite obvious. I refer to them as points of disjunction or saturation. If there's a a disjunction, a, a sharp, shocking, jarring moment in the text, that can be an indication that in part what the narrator is trying to do is get you, the reader, to sit up and take notice because he wants to, he wants to get into your kitchen now, not just your world, but to say something specific to you. Again, Genesis 38 is a wonderful example. It's just out of nowhere. First reading, Joseph, brothers, down to Egypt, turn the page, Joseph and Egypt. No, no, Judah and his daughter-in-law. And at the end of it, go back to Joseph. So what on earth just happened there? It's not a late insertion. Part of what's going on, part of what's going on, is that the, the jarring nature of the narrative prompts you to sit up and take note because there... The narrator does actually want to make a very specific point of application into your world. And again, when you read the text and you ask those questions, what's happening and how's it being told, you'll start to see what the specific application is. Points of disjunction, abrupt endings are another one. There are a number of books in the Bible that end very abruptly. And we don't have this settled sense of they lived happily ever after. That's a rhetorical device. And it's given so as to get into your world in a very specific way. And then the contrast would be points of saturation. These are perhaps easier to see in narrative texts. They're typically when the narrative jumps up to poetry. It's an elevated form of communication within the ancient world. When the narrative defaults to poetry... That is a point of what I call saturation. The text is in super high visibility, again, because there's a specific point of application that the narrator determines to make. It's not every week. In the Joseph narrative, I found two of them. And let's say you preach 
10, 20, 30, 40, 50 sermons in the Joseph narrative, there's two points, I would argue, where you're actually going to say to the congregation, specifically, this is how you ought to respond. Most weeks, you're going to commend them to sit back and gaze at the glory of God in this narrative. Preach the reader's world. Allow the text to infuse itself into the reader's world. Whatever it is you want them to see and behold, you can help them by by pushing that into their reality. Assuming that you're in the job of week-by-week-by-week exposition with the same saints, you know what their Monday through Saturday looks like. So you can help them with the appropriation by grasping onto the salient truth that you believe is being showcased through this narrative and just pushing it for them into their world. Just preach the grace of God in their life. You're not asking them to do anything, but just to see it as you've already seen it in the narrative and so on and so forth. So in summary, we do feel that this is a difficult genre because it doesn't give us the theological point of the text explicitly, nor does it give us the implications. Both are inferred, and they're thousands of miles away in the Old Testament world. But if you can lock into the principle of plot, and if you can read the plot as a pivot between two worlds, your sermons will begin to align with authorial intent, and you will see transformed lives as a result. I want to end there to give you time to get to the next session. Just a word of prayer as we close. Father, we love you. We love your word. We're grateful for its many complexities, not least the the wonders of the Old Testament narrative portions of the Bible. As ever, we ask that you would help us, equip us, help us to think well about that portion of the text. And I do pray for anyone here in the ministry of preaching your word Sunday by Sunday, that you would equip them, that your Holy Spirit would lead them in their thinking and reading of the text so that our sermons would align with authorial intent and they would do their work in the hearts of our people. In Jesus' name, amen.